Good morning. My name is Bobby Goff. I'm one of the students here. Uh, Today we will be reading in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 12, verse 29. You can find that on page 66, I believe. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, and they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread, The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare the food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, on, to Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident and hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. But the same law applies to the native born and the alien living among you. All the Israelites did what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to the for every firstborn male, the offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the, this day, the, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast today, in the in the month of Abib. You are leaving when the Lord brings 
you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hevites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing was e- with yeast in it to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. The Lord, For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with, this, with his mighty hand. You must keep an ordinance that, appoint, that at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives, gives it to you, as he has promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give, give over the Lord the firstborn offspring of every womb, all the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among you, among your sons. In these days, come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the firstborn, first male offspring in every womb, and, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with His mighty hand. Let's pray, dear Lord. Thank you for this beautiful day. Uh, thank you for bringing us all together to worship you. Uh, please bless Pete and work through him as he speaks to us this morning. And open our hearts and minds to receive your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't it such a joy to see these students up here leading? It's uh, such a joy for me to see and just be encouraged by what God is doing in them. This is a great day to be together. So um, I'm going to start this sermon with a, a test. You know, the students are going back to school. And, um, you know, growing up, I kind of loved history. So um, let, me, let me see if anyone knows this date, okay? May 8th, 1945. Does anyone know what happened that day? Anyone know? Okay, if you have deductive reasoning, you can probably assume that it has something to do with World War II, maybe just a little bit. Um, So that day was called Victory in Europe Day. The the short version of it is VE Day. So this day was a day of victory for the Allied forces over, you know, the crazy tyrannical dictator of the Axis powers. It was a day of celebration in America and all throughout Europe. It was a great day of accomplishment because the war in Europe was finally over. So in America, loved ones would return with tales of, of the war throughout Europe. 
the day of peace and liberation meant one thing. It's time to rebuild. It's time to come back together and rebuild from this judgment period. During the war, millions of people died. Millions of others were affected by the war and had to flee for safety. And they cried out for freedom and redemption from this war and this period of suffering. And on VE Day, they were rescued. It finally came. Millions of people celebrated their salvation from this war. So for those involved, May 8th, it was a reminder of redemption. As we look to Exodus, we see God instituting days that are to be celebrated as a way to remember the redemption that he provided for his people in the Exodus. God didn't want his people to forget the salvation that he gave them and that he sent to them and worked on their behalf. And so we come to the climactic moment this morning, the Exodus. So let's ask one overarching question. Why is our salvation worth celebrating? There's two answers that we're going to unpack this morning. Our salvation is worth celebrating because it's accomplished in a dramatic fashion and because salvation is for everyone. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you and praise you that this morning we can hear from your word, your divinely inspired word that's meant to encourage us, equip us for life and for godliness. Lord, I pray this morning that you would become great in this place, Lord, that I would get out of the way and that your people would be cared for through your word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you're our great God, you're our rock, and you are our redeemer. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we see from the very long reading, we see the death of the firstborn is the final plague upon the Egyptians. So previously, God has hit them with nine different plagues. And each one had the same effect upon, upon Pharaoh. His heart was hardened, and he wouldn't let the Israelites go. And what we see is that there's a distinction in how God treats the Egyptians and how God treats the Israelites. And so, as we look to the, to the Word, we see this is just another example of how God deals differently with them. Look at verse 29. We'll read it. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. So God judges Egypt's sons. This last plague is the most devastating because it affects every single Male child in Egypt. There was no escape. Children died. Livestock died. And there was a great cry, a loud wailing. This was complete destruction. So, why would God do this? This sounds rough. Why would God act in this way to people like this? Well, he does it to provide salvation for his people. This is the beautiful twist 
that we see in Exodus. The salvation of the Israelites comes through the judgment of the Egyptians. When we think of salvation, we really usually don't think that a necessary aspect, a necessary aspect of our salvation is judgment. God, interestingly enough, judges both the Egyptians and he judges the Israelites. The difference is that the Israelites' judgment was absorbed by a substitute. God instituted a Passover lamb to take on the judgment so that the Israelites could be sheltered under and covered by the blood of the lamb through faith. For us this morning, salvation is available by the same way. 1 Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is using language that draws us back to the Passover. So this morning, we can be delivered from the power and from the penalty of sin through the blood of Christ by faith. The death of the firstborn in Egypt foreshadows the death of Christ. Because our salvation comes to us through the judgment of God's firstborn son, Jesus. And so this morning, we can rejoice. We can rejoice at the cross, at the feet of Jesus, for his grace to us in Christ. And this church is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what we praise. It's interesting that the gospel comes to us by grace, and usually it's explained as good news. And it is good news. It's incredible news. And that's not a bad definition, but to those who don't believe, it's bad news. If you don't submit your lives to Christ, you will be judged for your sins. The Egyptians were judged because of their rebellion. And Pharaoh woke up that night and he realized that he was not sovereign. He was not the authority over his land like he thought. And he was judged. But what's interesting is that the judgment for, Israel, for Egypt turns into salvation and rescue for Israel. Salvation comes through judgment. So Pharaoh... As we go on in the narrative, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron at midnight and sends the Israelites out to go serve the Lord. They say, he says, get away from me. Get out of here. And the other Egyptians, they, they wanted the Israelites gone. They had enough of these plagues and they sent them out in haste, quickly. They didn't even have enough time for the dough to rise on their bread. The Egyptians were so eager to get them out of the land that they gave them gold and silver and jewelry and clothing as they left. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I mean, who, who kicks out a different nation and gives them stuff as they're kicking him out? It doesn't make any sense. And this is so beautiful because God promised, he promised Moses that after this last plague, that Pharaoh would let them go and that Israel would plunder the Egyptians. It even fulfills back in Genesis 15 what God said to Abraham. He said to Abraham that the Israelites would leave Egypt with great possessions. And so we see God fulfilling his word, fulfilling his promises. And the Israelites left Egypt as a victorious army who plundered their opposition. 
And so God saved the Israelites. And so also he rescues us. And he clothes us with his grace. And he does it through defeating Satan, sin and death at the cross. The Israelites plundered Egypt as they left. And you might think, oh, that's awesome. Like God gave them stuff for their journey on the way, these material things. And maybe you're wondering, well, what do these Christians get? What do we get? You know, this life is hard. We don't get the gold, the silver, and the clothing. We don't get good health. But church, we get something much better. Ephesians 1 says that we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places. And church, that is so much better than gold, silver, and material possessions. Because what we get is eternal rather than temporary. So we get joy in Christ because of our salvation and joy that will last until the end of the ages. We get joy which enables us to look at Christ in his word and pray to him with confidence knowing that he hears us. The Israelites, they they cried out because of their hardships and we cry out knowing that our God hears us. He's faithful to his word and he will care for his people. So God responds. He keeps his word and he brings this salvation through judgment to his people. So we see that our salvation is worth celebrating because it comes to us in a dramatic fashion and in an unexpected way. The second thing that we'll see is that our salvation is for all kinds of people. For all kinds of people. So God brings them out of Egypt. This is a mass migration that's leaving Egypt in the middle of the night. And so you might be familiar with the Exodus. I thought I was. You know, and I, as I was studying this, I found that there's another huge twist in the passage. So you've heard this story as God liberating the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, but there's an incredible part of verse 38 that we might have overlooked. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 38. It says, Many other people went up with them. Many other people went up with them. So, follow me here. The people of God, the Israelites, are traveling in the middle of the night, and along with them are many other people fleeing Egypt by their side. Like, what's going on here? Like, the Israelites aren't ancient Uber drivers that can afford to have people coming up with them. So what's going on? I mean, who are these people and what are they doing? Well, they're not Jewish. They're foreigners who are joining them. They're coming alongside. Why are they leaving Egypt? Well, let me give you a couple reasons that they might be leaving. We're not really sure why, but they could be leaving to escape their own oppression and poverty. Maybe these people were enslaved along with the Israelites. I mean, Egypt has just undergone ten horrendous plagues that they were impacted by. I mean, maybe they're thinking, all right, I can't handle these bugs anymore. I can't handle these storms. And please, if I see another frog, I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they're seeing the the power of Israel's God and they say, I want to follow this God. I want to join this God. What does it reveal about our God that the foreigners are joining Israel in the Exodus? 
it shows us that our Lord has a heart for all peoples and all nations. And the greatest act of salvation in Israel's history includes outsiders who God also saved from oppression in Egypt. The whole book of Exodus, it shows the missionary heart of God. It shows that God has a heart for the nations. It shows that God wants his name to be made known throughout the whole world and to all peoples. And the way that he's going to do that is by showing this beautiful redemption story of salvation through judgment. So this is the beautiful twist that we see in God's word. It shows that salvation is available to all kinds of people. All kinds of people. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter who your family is. Salvation is available to everyone. So if this is the first time that you're in this church, I want you to hear that salvation, all this stuff that I'm talking to you about, is available to you. It's available to you. If you've been trying to talk to a friend about Jesus, don't give up. Do not give up. Persevere. Because all people can be saved by God if they're called by faith unto Him. No one is too far from God's grace. He's gracious and He's merciful and He will forgive. So, we see God saving His people and that's not the end of the story, which is incredible. He saves His people, but He desires them to be holy like He is. He desires them to be set apart to be distinct, to be different. And so the other people that he saved, the the foreigners that he saved, he desires for them to, to join in with the people of God and to follow the requirements of being part of the people of God. So let's look at verses 43 and 44 to see what some of those requirements are. 43 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave after you've bought may any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. So, okay, salvation is for all people. And to those who trust in, in God, in Yahweh, they will be holy to the Lord. So that's why God instructs Moses and Aaron to not allow the foreigner to eat of the Passover. The meal was to be a remembrance of the redemption that God had provided for his people. And so God gives these provisions about the Passover so that his people would be holy. And in order to be holy, they had to make a commitment to God. And that commitment, the sign of being part of the Israelite community, the sign of conversion, was circumcision. This is something that a man would remember forever, right? Some of you this morning might think, giving up a Sunday morning, waking up at 9 o'clock, why would the church do this to me? You think that this is a commitment to God. Maybe you should try the Old Testament alternative. (laughs) I mean, think for a second. Put yourself in their shoes, okay? So you've been transferred, you've actually, sorry, you've gone through the 10 different plagues, which in and of themselves are crazy, right? 
you've been through those plagues. You're following the people of Israel, the people of God, in the, in midnight, at midnight, in the Exodus, and you finally get to the land, and the leader of the people of God, Moses, says to you these things. Your response would be like, wait, I got to do what? Right? I mean, this is, this is a high commitment. Becoming part of the people of God is a high commitment. And church, Jesus said things that also showed a high level of commitment to him. He told the disciples, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's a high calling. It's natural for us to want to diminish, to to lower the standards a little bit of what Jesus says. And you know, if I'm honest, I I do that. And and I do that by, by being all about Pete. I'm all about me. I'm all about my comfort. I'm self-centered. And you know, I think, I think that it won't affect how I follow Jesus, but it does. My self-centeredness directly affects how I follow Jesus. So the foreigners who joined the people of God had a high cost to follow Israel's God. It affected them physically, relationally, spiritually, and it marked them for the rest of their lives. The disciples who followed Christ were also faced with these radical calls of Jesus to believe in him. And you know what they declare to him? They declare in one of those times in John 6, they declare to Jesus after he asked them, are you going to leave too? Are you not going to follow these high commands? The disciples say, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This was really costly for the disciples to say because it calls them to follow, to follow Jesus no matter what. They didn't have any qualifiers. They said, we're going to follow you. You're the Holy One of God. It was also gracious because when they followed Jesus, that's where they found their true life and their true purpose and their true joy. God knows the costliness of this grace. It was costly for the disciples. It's costly for us. But God knows it because it cost him the life of his son. God reminds us that we were bought at a price, the death of Jesus. And since grace costs God so much, we have to know that it cannot be cheap for us. It can't be cheap for us. So for us, I think grace can sometimes be like an apple. Let me explain. Apples here are so common in New England, they grow on trees in our backyards. But you know, in other countries around the world, they can't grow. The temperature isn't right. And so in order to have an apple, it's really costly. But for us here, we trample the ones that fall on the ground. It's not a big deal. So has God's grace become common like this to you? Maybe you've grown up in the church and have heard so much about the gospel and about God's grace that you take it for granted. I mean, why do we preach the gospel every week? Like, this is, this is a big book. There's got to be something else we can preach about, right? But no, we preach the gospel because we need it. We need it for life. 
We need it for every aspect of our lives, and God's grace is available to us. And I think sometimes, if, if we're honest, we, we don't know how to use God's grace. We don't know how it affects our lives. In some ways, it's, it's like being stranded on a desert island with a fueled-up airplane that you don't know how to fly. That's what it's like being a Christian sometimes and knowing that God's grace is available but not knowing how to tap into it. The way that we tap into God's grace is by believing it. Believing it and letting it affect every aspect of our lives. Like yeast affects the dough. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So in order to let grace affect us, we need to obey what Jesus says. Since grace is so costly, it calls us to obey God. Not to just say, ah, whatever. I don't care what you have to say. No, since we see the grace of Christ, it enables us and, and calls us to obey what he says. So for us today, one of the first signs of obedience is becoming part of the people of God through baptism. Thank God for baptism. It's so much easier than the Old Testament version. Baptism represents union with Christ by being buried under the water and by being brought out. It shows being raised up from the water to show that you have new life with Jesus. And we see this throughout the whole book of Acts that when someone believes, they're baptized, and then immediately they become part of the community. And usually, baptism is something that happens before you take the Lord's Supper. So this is just me. I would encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, I would would tell you to think about the commitment that you need to make before you take a meal celebrating Jesus' death. And let me me give a scripture uh, proof of that. Look at verse 48 in chapter 12. Verse 48 says, An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. So what that verse is saying is that circumcision was required before the foreigners were allowed to eat the Passover meal. So commitment to God and conversion to the people of God comes before communing and being able to celebrate and participate the feast, in the feast. So for us, this should be a serious reminder that as we take the Passover meal, or the the Lord's Supper, that this is a serious thing. Because in the Passover, they were memorializing their salvation through judgment, and they weren't to eat of this meal in in a flippant way. And so when the foreigner becomes part of the people of God, what happens? Well, let's keep reading in verse 48. So he says, um, sorry, I'll just reread the second part of verse 48. It says, then he may take, he may take part like one in the land. Uh, no circum- uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native-born and to the alien living among you. So once the foreigner and his family take this step of commitment, they're going to be treated like a native Israelite. They have now entered into the covenant relationship and blessing that God has on his chosen people. 
There's no privileged position in the people of God. You know, I think some of us in the church might assign some, like, higher level of Christianity to missionaries, to pastors, to elders. And, and let's be real here. There's no hierarchy. We're all equal in Christ. And the, the moment that I was born into my family, I was equal with my older brother, even though he was three years older than me. In the same way, in the church of God, in the family of God, there's no hierarchy. We're all equal in Christ. Sure, there's distinctions in the gifts that God gives us. Some people are, are given visible gifts like this, but other people are given gifts that are meant to serve the body and encourage the church. And as the community comes together in relationships, we're seeing that the way that God builds this community and brings health to the church and health to the people is when the church comes together using all of their manifold gifts to the glory of God. And that's where community develops. And it's community that's not based around anything that we bring to the table, but solely around the gospel of Jesus and his grace. You know, as Christians, we understand relationships. We understand community. And we understand that genuine love flourishes on commitment. So let me give one example. We can enjoy the freedoms of marriage far better in the safe walls of covenant. And I can say that now because I've been married for three weeks. So (laughs) I'm an expert, right? But as Christians, we see this. We see that commitment and relationship are two sides of the same coin. We see this. This is why as a church, we should strive for deep relationships with one another. But how, how do these deep relationships happen? Well, the place that cultivates relationships in a gospel-centered, commitment-driven atmosphere is actually church membership. Some of you just like look like a dog hearing their name called. Church membership, what? So church membership is the place where these relationships can happen. The main thing that church membership does is it draws a line with those on one side of the line covenanting together in relationship in the church, and on the other side are those who are not. Church membership is not like a gym membership where you only show up on holidays and New Year's. Church membership is a commitment to community, to live in covenant relationship in the church. It's not just going to a Sunday school class and doing churchy things. Church membership is doing life together, sharing meals with one another, celebrating life's big events with one another, and even when sorrows happen, being there to comfort one another in Christ. It's discipling one another. It's seeing the younger generation and those younger in the faith and coming alongside them, mentoring them, sharing wisdom with them, godly wisdom with them, and pointing each other to Christ in every way. And so if if church membership rubs you the wrong way, just feels weird, know that it's not a new thing. God has always been drawing a line, delineating those who are his people and those who are not his people. We saw that in the plagues the last couple weeks, that God put a division between his people and the Egyptians. 
And so in the same way, when, when the foreigner is finally brought into this complete covenant community, they're one, they're united, and they must abide by the decree of God so that they live for the Lord and ultimately that they celebrate this salvation. That's what all of this is about. Church membership allows us to together and in a commitment and a community to celebrate the salvation that we have in Christ. So as we look at the final section of this passage, we see that the Lord told Moses to establish these feasts and celebrations that are reminders of the mighty hand of God in providing salvation for them. Let's look at a couple places in in chapter 13. Look at verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Look down in verse 9. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Look in verse 14. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And lastly, verse 16. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So Moses is clear to Israel that God powerfully ushered in salvation for them. He did it with his mighty hand. And this caused them to celebrate. And each of these ceremonies is designed to to retell the story and to talk about the events of the Exodus so that the future generations would know. So that the future Israelites could participate in the deliverance and salvation that God provided for his people. This is why youth ministry exists. This is why children's ministry exists. We want to pass on the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word to the younger generation so that they would be able to, like us, celebrate the salvation that we have in Christ. Parents, did you see in verse 8 and verse 14 those calls to you that when children ask about what these things mean, that you're to give the answer. You're on the front lines. You're on the front lines of doing children's ministry and youth ministry. We pray for you. One, one pastor says that a church can lose their gospel witness in the course of three generations. So the first generation believes the gospel, has deep relationship with God, trusts him, obeys his word. The next generation assumes the gospel. Oh, my, my parents, they have a good relationship with God. You know, I can kind of live how I want. God's grace isn't costly. And then the third generation that follows outright denies the gospel. Church, we need to be a place that doesn't assume the gospel. We need to be a place that is reminded of the salvation that we have in Christ and to celebrate it with joy and to believe in God's promises that he has for us in Christ. A church that assumes the gospel is like a lamp 
without a light on it. The lamp might look good, but it's not serving its purpose. In the same way, a church that assumes the gospel doesn't serve its purpose. We need to be a place that, that serves their purpose for the glory of God. And this is what the Israelites show us. So in each ceremony, and as we look at the first part of chapter 13, in each ceremony, they're reenacting something that happened on the night of the Exodus. So in the Passover, they're eating the lamb in haste. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're eating the bread in the same way that the Israelites ate it as they left Egypt. And in the consecration of the firstborn, it was a reminder of God judging the Egyptians through killing the firstborn. So all of these events, the purpose of them was to bring the past and the present together. And we do this. We do this on a regular basis. We celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, big life events. And, and the Israelites, they needed to be reminded that God was their Redeemer. That He was the one who brought them out. And this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, we get these reminders too. That in communion, we reenact the events of the death and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We participate in the breaking of bread, which was like Christ's body. We participate in the drinking of the blood like Jesus drank God's, the cup of God's divine wrath on the cross. And these reminders are meant to give us joy. To give us joy in Christ. So this morning, as we take communion, don't be filled with guilt at the amount of sin in your heart. Sometimes when I take communion, I'm... I'm Filled with that guilt. But remember that it's been forgiven by the acts of Jesus that you're, that you're remembering in the Lord's Supper. So when you take the body, remember that the death of Jesus means that the wrath of God has been diverted from you and on to Christ. Rejoice this morning that Jesus paid it all. When you take the blood, remember that the blood of Jesus has cleansed you to be as white as snow, pure, holy to the Lord. O church, rejoice in your salvation this morning. The Exodus was the definitive moment of God's salvation in Israel's history. For hundreds of years in the Old Testament, they celebrated the Passover feast as a celebration of God's mercy upon them and rescuing them from slavery and bondage in Egypt to celebrate God's glory in salvation through judgment. And during the ministry of Jesus, you know what he did? He redirected. He redirected the Passover feast and made it a celebration of the new covenant of his blood. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the new exodus that eclipses the exodus from Egypt as the decisive moment of God's salvation and God glorifying himself in salvation. This is the beauty of our salvation. It's not man-made. It's God-ordained. And God gets the glory for it. God gets the glory for our salvation. And Jesus takes on our judgment so that we can experience an incredible salvation. And church, you think there's a lot of people here in this room right now. One day, 
those who belong to Christ will be a great multitude. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7? And that's where we'll close the service this morning. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. It's on page 1220. I want you to notice all the different elements of the exodus that you see in this passage. So Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, do you see the beauty of this passage? That one day there will be Many other people with us from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language worshiping and praising our great God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And salvation belongs to Him. And glory belongs to Him. And we, by God's grace, get to experience this church. Rejoice in this salvation. Celebrate this salvation because it's available to all people And this should result in praise and celebration to God Almighty. Did you notice, church, what the great multitude is wearing? Robes of white. Because we've been cleansed by that blood. Been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And our sin that stains us like like crimson has been taken away. We're as white as snow because of Jesus. And what what we can say one day Church, if you believe in Christ, and we will join with this great multitude, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We can cry out in glory and praise of Jesus together. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we give you all the glory. Our salvation belongs to you, There's nothing in us that earns or merits our salvation. It's all You, Jesus. We pray that You would be with us as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray that You would encourage us this morning as we celebrate and reenact the events of the cross. For Your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.